Good morning. Would you turn your Bibles with me this morning, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Would you stand with me one more time, and we'll read our text together. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1-13 through 13 will be our focus of study this morning. Let's read this together. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been improved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Our Heavenly Father, we, we come to Your Word this morning with joy. And as we begin this annual meeting Sunday, it is, it is our privilege to focus on a text that so powerfully informs the ministry of the Gospel and calls us to a way of ministry that honors and glorifies You. Father, we we desire to be the body of Christ that You would have us to be. We desire to be shaped by the Holy Spirit. We desire to be empowered filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can can live out gospel ministry like this text describes. So Father, we, we ask You this morning as our Father to please bestow this good gift upon us. We are completely unable in ourselves to produce a fruitful ministry of the Gospel. But you can, Father, out of your choosing love, you can, you can so move among us with a work of the Spirit that you, 
You transform us into being people who are vessels of clay, but indwelt with the power of the Gospel so that others would be attracted to the glory of God in the face of Christ as the Gospel is communicated. Father, the, the change that is required in us, the, 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 the change that would come as a result of the Gospel being proclaimed in others' lives to see them turn, to see us turn from from false gods to serve the living and the true God and to have a heart that is eager for the return of Christ and is laboring in all that we do to, to proclaim the Gospel and bring You glory. Father, that kind of transformation is, it seems just, well, it's impossible for us, but we ask You to do it in us. Father, time seems short. Our community, our, our, the world that we live in, our country is so broken, so far from the truth. And so, Father, we, we need not to waste time in our gathering. We need not to, to live for the pleasures of the world and sin only for a season, only to see them evaporate when, when You return. Father, teach us Teach us how to be ambassadors of Christ. Put within us, over the course of this year, these marks of fruitful ministry. And we ask that You would, through our lives and through our message, bring people to saving knowledge of Christ. Free them, Father, from, from the slavery of idolatry, from the slavery of sin. Only You, the Son, the sun sets people free. They are free indeed. Everything else is a farce and a hypocritical show of morality. Father, we pray that You would please do this work that is described in this letter of Thessalonians. It is our great desire. And so we ask that You would begin to put more seeds of this change in our lives even today through this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as, as we enjoy annual meeting Sunday today, I think it's always fitting that we talk about ministry. Kind of a day to remind ourselves um, why are we here? Who are we in Christ? Who are we as the church of the living God? What has God called us to do and be by the power of His Spirit? And the question that I really want us to consider this morning is what does a fruitful ministry look like? Do you want to have a fruitful ministry? Not just corporately, but individually as those who are discipling others. As a believer, don't you long to be able to sit across the table from an unbeliever who is struggling and broken in their sin, and you give them the Gospel, and you see it grip them. You see understanding fill their eyes. You see longing fill their eyes, and they embrace Christ, and then their lives are changed. Don't you want to see that? Sometimes don't you get tired of not seeing it? Right? We, we labor, and we speak, and we open the Bible, and we try. And, and, and I know how it is. I mean, you, 
you, you try, you speak the gospel, you, you take opportunities that God gives you, and then it seems like nothing happens sometimes. And, and, and often, if you're anything like me, you become introspective. You're like, did I, did I say things right? What am, I, what am I not doing? And this text really attributes the work of fruitful ministry and the transformation of the Gospel to the power of the Holy Spirit working through the spoken Word and the loving life. And so, this, this I, I can't think of another text that elicits from my heart greater passions for ministry than this one. And I, I hope that it will be encouraging to you as well. This, I want to be this way. And I invite you to join me in that desire. Do you want, as we walk through this text, ask yourself, do I want to have a ministry that looks like this? As I share the Gospel with, with my children at home or, or in the workplace with my, with my co-workers, Spirit of God, do this for your, for your glory. The Apostle Paul opens this text by saying very plainly that the ministry that God gave to them in the city of Thessalonica was a fruitful ministry. He says it, our coming to you, that's the simple statement of his ministry that God brought them to the city of Thessalonica. They, They spent three days, three Sundays in the synagogue preaching the Gospel and people received the Gospel. They came, and he says there, it was not in vain. That word vain simply talks about being fruitless, to no effect, without result, devoid of produce. Paul says our ministry was not like that. They spoke the Gospel three Sundays in a row. Synagogue was full people were saved. And it was so fruitful, in fact, that the city officials got involved and literally drove Paul, Silas, and Timothy out of Thessalonica. And you see in this text, really, the, the, the impact of what he means when he says our ministry was not in vain, that it was fruitful. When they came there, look at verse 13. They thanked God constantly for this. When you receive the Word of God. That's fruitful ministry right there. People receiving the Word of God, which they heard from Paul and Silas and Timothy, this, this church planting team. They accepted it. They didn't just accept it and take it as reading another novel or hearing another story and go on with their lives. They accepted it as the Word of God. And not as just another religious or theological statement from another human being, but as it really is the Word of God. And that Word of God, Paul says, was at work in them as they were believing the truth of the Gospel. Isn't that an amazing statement of Gospel fruitfulness in verse 13? Thank God for this. You received the Word. And when you received it, you received it as the highest authority that it is. 
You submitted your life to it. You received it as the Word of God. And it's at work in you. Paul continues to talk about the fruitfulness. Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He describes how fruitful their reception of the Gospel was. Notice starting in verse 6. We're going to come back to verses 4 and 5 later on in a specific point in the message. So we'll come back to that. But just look at verse 6. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. Here's the, the fruitfulness of their ministry. When these believers received the Word, they became imitators. That, that the desire to follow the apostles and the Lord filled them. They received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Something else you, you, you learn so quickly as you minister the Gospel to other people is that when people first receive the Word of God, and God begins to work change in their lives, that, that change is immediately accompanied by pressure and affliction, isn't it? From trials and temptations and inner struggles. And yet, through that, what did the Thessalonians do? They continued with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So much so, verse 7, that they became an example to other believers who were receiving the Word in the area, Macedonia and Achaia. And so, even beyond that, they became examples, they became imitators, and they became witnesses. Verse 8, the Word sounded forth from you. These new believers were trumpets for the Gospel already sounded forth from in Macedonia and Achaia. And their faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that the apostle te- apostolic team didn't need to say anything. The Gospel was already there. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you and how you... Here, look at this. Gospel transformation. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Isn't that fruitful ministry? Don't you want that? Do you want to see the people that you are discipling become like that? That's fruitful ministry. We can't accomplish that. The Holy Spirit can accomplish that. We'll look at that. So what we see in this text is what kind of ministry God uses to create that kind of fruitfulness. God does both of those things. He he forms believers into people like Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And with that formation, He brings also the transformation in those to whom they witness. And so verses 2-12 through describe, Paul just openly, honestly describes the ministry their ministry, the methods, the motives, the messages of, of the ministry that, that they had in Thessalonica. So there, there's eight qualities here. Let's, I'm going to move through these kind of quickly, and if I can. And um, we're not, I'm not going to apply these very much because if I take each one of these and apply them detailed, we'll be here for several hours. So I'm going to describe them from Paul's perspective. And then we'll just come to a conclusion. And really, I give you this text as a, as a prayer list. 
for you to think about these more and more and ask God, make us this way. And work through us this way. So first of all, the first mark of a fruitful ministry is boldness. You can see that in your outline. They were bold. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they declared to the Thessalonians the Gospel of God. And you see that right there in verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the Gospel of God. What's, what's amazing about their declaration of the Gospel is the, is, is the power that the Spirit of God gave to that Word as they were communicating it in spite of what they were experiencing. And this is, this is a, a very clear theme throughout the New Testament. Listen, where you have great Gospel opportunity, there will always be great opposition. That is always the way it is. Because we're talking about two kingdoms here, right? Darkness and light. And when the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, speaks the gospel into the kingdom of darkness, those who are powerful in the kingdom of darkness will not allow that to go without opposition. And God is greater than all of that. But the fact is, is there will be great opposition. So when Paul and Silas and Timothy were in Philippi declaring the gospel, it says they, they suffered. They, they were had suffered there. That means to be greatly affected, to feel the affliction, to undergo, to experience this great hardship. And you can, you can read about some of those accounts in, in the book of Acts, Acts 14, 15, 16, 17. You see when he's going through this area and he describes those hardships. They had been shamefully treated. Right? Shamefully treated. That means to be injured by another, by someone speaking evil of them. To, to act that someone had acted insolently toward Paul and Silas and Timothy, outrageously. And then when they got into Thessalonica, it was basically getting out of the frying pan and getting into the fire. They, they had much conflict. That word there, conflict, is the, <clears throat> the place of contact, con, contest. The arena, the arena, the stadium of the Greek games, literally. The, the place of battle, struggle. The struggle itself, the battle itself. The word, it's the word from which we derive our word for agony. That's what they experienced in Thessalonica. They had people speaking evil of them. They had people who wanted to run them out of town. And yet, in the midst of all of that, I mean, is it, there, there's probably nothing more for, for, our, for our day. I mean, I don't think any of us have been stoned or beaten for the Gospel like Paul was. But for our day, we sometimes do experience very hostile feelings toward us. Right? That's not foreign. Slander. How do you feel when someone is spreading something false about you? And how, how, how do you feel when someone has just strong, hostile emotions toward you and they let you know it? And even in their silence, they project it on you. Does it sometimes just make you feel sick? Right? And it, wants, it makes you want to just shut down sometimes. And yet, what do you see with the apostles, his associates here? 
they declared the gospel of God. They still declared it. And, and what was it that energized them to do so? It says here, because they had boldness in their God. They had boldness. That's the ability to speak freely, frankly, fearlessly, openly, plainly, with courage, with confidence. It's a freedom of speech that removes restraint or, or, or restriction. That is, that's an envied place, isn't it? To even in the being surrounded by such opposition that you have freedom of speech like that to say exactly what God would have you to. And that boldness they had in their God. Notice that. In their God. We don't get boldness from self-confidence. We get boldness in God. That means their boldness came from the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what John 15, 26-27 talks about. Jesus told His disciples up front, He said the world is going to hate you and they're going to think they're going to be doing God a service by killing you, by putting you out. It's all going to happen. And at the end of that section that Jesus explains the hostility of the world toward witnesses of Christ, He says, but I'm sending you the Spirit. And He's going to be in you. And He will testify in and through you so that you can be My witnesses too. That's exactly what Paul experienced. That's, what, that's God's promise to believers who are proclaiming the Gospel and truth. Their boldness escalated from knowing that they were in Christ, that they were filled with the Spirit. Their boldness overflowed from knowing that they spoke as God's commissioned messengers with God's message and with God's authority. Isn't that what Matthew, 18, or Matthew 28, 18-20 is all about? All authority. Heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go, and I'm with you. Wow, what a, what a word from Christ. And God is the only source of this kind of boldness to declare the Gospel of God in the midst of much of conflict. But that kind of boldness is absolutely essential for fruitful ministry. Essential. Boldness. Spiritual Fortitude given by God to declare the gospel of God in the face of great adversity. That's essential for fruitful ministry. Second, this morning, truthfulness. Truthful. They were truthful. Look at verses 3 and 4. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man but to please God who tests our hearts. When Paul and Silas and Timothy made their gospel appeal to the Thessalonians, urging them, you know that moment when you've given the, the information of the gospel and you begin to urge someone to receive it? When they made their appeal, when they urged, when they summoned the Thessalonians to receive Christ and rest in His saving work and repent of sin, that appeal to them was totally truthful. It was honest. It was upfront. What it is, is what it was. Being completely truthful in the Gospel appeal is essential to a truly fruitful ministry. I mean, so what, is, what are we talking about here? My, my appeal is truthful. Well, let's look at this. 
That means the appeal, the persuasion, the stirring, the impetus that was presented to the hearers for receiving Christ did not come from error, impurity, deception, or man-pleasing. Do you see those words? Error, impurity, deception. Not to please man. What do you mean error? There was not... There was no straying from objective truth of the Gospel. No misleading information in their appeal. No wrong opinions. No, only, only God's clear truth. That, that's our desire. There are so many Gospel appeals that are filled with error. Ours must be filled with truth. Impurity. That means, from Paul's perspective, there was no uncleanness, no immorality of, of, of lustful luxurious or profligate living injected into their reasoning with their audience to receive the Gospel or hidden in their motives for making converts. How many people invite another person to receive the Gospel for the fulfillment of earthly sensual desire? Or for their own sensual earthly desire? There was no deception. There was no craftiness or guile or bait and switch like fishing, right? Urging, conversa- con- urging conversion for one reason only to then unveil the true reason for conversion after the public commitment has been made. They didn't make the surface of the gospel look different than the substance of the gospel. That's easy for us to do too. Sometimes, as you're communicating the Gospel to someone, you hear it in your own ears and you're like, wow, that sounds really demanding. That sounds really harsh. That sounds really foreign to this person's ears and desires. And so what do we do? We sort of make the Gospel sound and present it differently than what it actually is. Well, that's, that's a little bit of deception in a sense going on there. And man-pleasing, right? Telling people whatever they want to hear so that their gospel appeal is received. You know, you, you know there's, there's church plant artists nowadays that, that describe to you, well, if you want to build your church, then find out what it is that your local community wants to hear. And that's what you tell them. And you shape the gospel to the desires of the hearer and then you make a sale in that way. That's not what the apostles did at all. They just gave the true Gospel with love and waited for the Spirit of God to do the work. Paul says this so plainly in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says in chapter 2, verse 17, we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity. We're sincerely giving the Gospel. Sincerity. As commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He says the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 4 and verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth. That's it. The open statement of the truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 
A deceptive gospel may come from the human desire to ask Jesus to help you to escape hell so that you can then live how you want. No, that's deceptive. Or to ask Jesus to help you to live your best life now with no cost. That's deceptive. It's just not reality. It's not an open statement. It's not a sincere message. The true gospel, the true appeal of the gospel, dear ones, comes from an understanding of God's holiness, human sinfulness, the righteousness of God's judgment against sin, the mercy of God's heart, and the Lordship of Christ. Think about that. You know, there's, there's two really strong reasons that, that energize our appeal of the Gospel. First, God is righteous and He will judge sin. That's a, that's a strong appeal. Do you want to be judged by the righteous, holy God? But then secondly, and right, right beside that, God is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving. Come to Him. So the person who is being illumined by the Holy Spirit to see their true condition and position under God, they will want to run to the merciful arms of the Father. They'll see that's a strong appeal to the one whose heart is being moved by the Holy Spirit. And so how can men faithfully make a gospel appeal like that? Well, they have to be tested and approved by God. That's in verse 4. You can open your Bibles if you're not seeing it on the screen for some reason. Um, verse 4, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Tested and approved by God. That means God, God examines His messengers. He scrutinizes them. He, he, he proves their hearts. God is very skillful in bringing to the surface the motives of your own heart even as you proclaim the Gospel to others. Has He done that for you? They're all, they come up, don't they? What am, why am I saying this? What is, what is my reason for appealing to you? What's going on in my heart? And, and God begins to cleanse and purify those motives so that when you, when you communicate the Gospel, your motive is then love for that person and desire for the glory of God. He works with us, doesn't He? And then, as He works with us, He entrusts to us opportunities for ministry. He entrusts it to us to be entrusted with the Gospel. Verse 4, the middle of the verse, to be entrusted. To give into the care of a man the Gospel instruction and maturity of people by the work of the Spirit through the, through the man, of course, or the woman as well, who may be discipling others and teaching others the Gospel. When a man has truly been tested and approved by God and then entrusted a Gospel work from God, God will be at work in his heart or her heart to turn them away from and protect them from the giving of the Gospel with an erroneous message, with impure motives, and with deceptive methods, God will guard and test and approve us as His servant. So truthfulness, that kind of truthfulness is essential to a fruitful ministry. Number three, selfless. It's verses 5 and 6. 
Look at it. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. God is witness. For we did not seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. When Paul, Silas, and Timothy spoke the Gospel, they didn't use the ministry of the Gospel as a deceptive means to fulfilling their own selfish worldly desires. They understood the Gospel ministry isn't a means to personal, selfish, worldly ends. And, and the end of the Gospel ministry is the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. In fact, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were on the other end of that spectrum from selfishness in the Gospel ministry. They were willing to literally, personally sacrifice themselves for the good of the people and the glory of God. Notice how Paul describes their selflessness. He says, we did not use selfish flattery. Never came with words of flattery. What's flattery? The Gospel message, flattery. Using smooth words in the ministry of the Gospel to massage someone's sense of self-importance, giving them a favorable impression of themselves in order to gain influence over them for the sake of personal selfish advantage. Isn't that what flattery is? You're making someone feel real good about themselves so they give you what you want. That has no place in discipleship and Gospel ministry. A pretext for greed. Using the ministry of the Gospel as a cover-up, a facade to manipulate people into giving whatever is desired in order to satisfy some personal selfish craving. Material things, money, personal control over people, personal approval, even sensual gratification. That's not unusual. They didn't seek the glory of people. Honor, recognition, approval, fame by gaining many followers. That's not why they were speaking the Gospel. Instead of manipulating others to give them what did not belong to them, they did selflessly give up for others what was perfectly legitimate for them to receive in the ministry. Their, their ministry was selfless. They, notice what they say there in verse, verse 6. We did not seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. In texts like 1 Corinthians 9, 3-18, we see what the Apostle says about honoring apostles or elders in 1 Timothy 5.21 and 6.13-16 and where you see this, this idea of, of giving respect and remuneration. And Paul says, we even gave that up. We didn't try to get something selfishly from you. We gave up for you what we could have demanded. They ministered for the genuine, eternal benefit of the people and the glory of Christ. They were willing to spend and be spent, like Paul says elsewhere, in order to teach people the Gospel and nurture spiritual growth among the people. They were selfless. Notice in verse 5, what held them to that kind of ministry? God is witness. Paul seemed to constantly have the audience of God before his mind's eye. And so it didn't matter to him who he displeased as long as his thoughts and words and actions were pleasing to God through Christ. Selflessness is essential to fruitful ministry. 
They didn't seek glory. They didn't use flattery. They didn't set up their discipleship ministry as a pretext for greed. God held them accountable to that. Number four this morning, gentle. That's verse 7. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. When Paul and Silas and Timothy ministered the gospel to the people of Thessalonica, they weren't selfish. Instead, they were exact opposite. They were gentle like a mother, Paul says. They took on the gentleness of a mother. That word means to be mild, kind, tender, patient, appropriately tolerant, avoiding harshness and forcefulness, fostering a bond of affection and devotion by protective and providing care. There are certainly situations in gospel ministry when gentleness is inappropriate. For example, exposing and removing a false teacher from among the body. Right? That's not, there's no call for gentleness there. And we see that in Christ's example in the Gospels as well. But when it comes to the normal course of gospel ministry, gentleness is the tenor for shepherding people. Paul talks about this so often. Paul exhorts Timothy to this in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. How is a nursing mother with her own newborn baby? <laughs> That's the illustration Paul gives, doesn't he? Like, like a mother with a newborn infant. She's every bit of gentle. Tenderly feeding the baby according to its need and its ability to feed. Patiently encouraging the baby with soft and tender words as it struggles to take in nourishment and develop through the challenges of early life. Gentleness is an essential mark for fruitful gospel ministry. Taking care, Paul says. Taking care of her own children. A mother is gentle and she takes care of her own children. That means to warm. That literally means to warm with body heat. The nursing mother would take that little nursing baby and place it as close to her own body as possible and warm it with her own body heat. These two words, gentle and taking care, are a vivid picture of the kind of ministry that Paul practiced among the Thessalonians. Paul saw himself as a nursing mother and these new baby Christians as nursing infants, he gently cared for them, feeding them on the Word as they needed and as they were able to receive. He personally warmed their souls, as it were, with, with the life of truth and the Word that God had placed into his own soul, exhorting them, encouraging them. Paul wasn't cold or distant or unemotive. He personally nurtured them as a spiritual parent, bringing them up in the admonition of the Lord. Gentleness, an essential mark for fruitful gospel ministry. Number five, affection. Notice in verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own, our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Affectionate. Paul, Timothy, Silas had genuine affection for the Thessalonians. They didn't, they didn't pretend to like them. 
being affectionately desirous of you. They didn't pretend. They didn't. They they genuinely loved them, and that love came through their ministry to the Thessalonians, and it was winsome. Not for their own benefit, right? But for the good of their audience and the glory of God. Notice how Paul describes his affection being affectionately desirous of you. They had strong desires for them. They they knew the longing of love for them. That's that's what the idea there. Affectionately desirous. The longing of love. And certainly their affection was the longing, the longing to impart to them the gift of the Gospel. This, This longing to see them set free from the fear of death. Longing to be free from the guilt of sin. That's what they wanted for the Thessalonians. To have them set free from slavery to idolatry and and life-controlling and corrupting sin that, that they had experienced up to that point that Paul knew would destroy them. To see them rejoice with the joy of the Holy Spirit knowing that they were loved and chosen by God through Jesus Christ. Have you ever had such spiritual affection for another person? Just eat up with this longing to to see them thrive in Christ. If you could just find what you have to give to them, you'd give it. And you plead with God to do the work. That's how they felt. Longing, affectionately desirous of you. Because you had become dear to us, Paul says. The end of the verse 8. Over the time that they are, were ministering the Gospel to the Thessalonians, their affection for them didn't diminish. It only increased. They became very dear. Literally, beloved. That, that word is, is, is the word for God's love. It came, they came to love them with the very love of God that moved God to send His only Son to die on the cross as the sacrifice for the very sinners who rebelled against Him. 1 John 4, 7-9. Paul, Timothy, Silas came to know that same self-sacrificing, others-serving, God-glorifying love for the Thessalonians. And that kind of love moved and empowered them to do two things in the ministry of the Gospel. First, to give them the Gospel itself. Do you see that in verse 8? They were ready to share with you not only the Gospel of God, so they did. Their love moved them. To give the Gospel itself. In the ministry of the Gospel, love is the central, holy, and God-honoring motive for teaching others the Gospel. That motive, love, for others, kicks out fear. It kicks out the fear that you have in communicating the Gospel. It kicks out selfish greed in Gospel ministry. The Gospel is spoken to believers and unbelievers because of love for them. The Gospel is the serum that is needed to give life to the one who has been stung by sin and death. The Gospel is the feast that is needed to give nourishment to the one who is alive in Christ and struggling to live like the victor over sin that he or she is in Christ. So you love people. You love them. You'll give them the Gospel. But fruitful ministry is more than giving the Gospel. It's giving oneself with the Gospel. That's what Paul says in verse 8. We're ready to share with you not only the Gospel of God, but our own selves. Paul, Silas, Timothy, 
delivered the feast of the gospel on the personal service of their lives. That was the, the platter to deliver the meal. Those who need to hear and receive the gospel will often do so as they personally experience the genuine love of Christ for them through the giving, serving, sacrificial, loving lives of the one who is speaking the gospel to them. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did and said to his apostles? Think about that. The night that he shared bread with them, he spoke to them of his own love, and he said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have this love toward one another, you're not greater than your master, Jesus said. And even as he's communicating all of this love to them, what was he doing? He was washing their feet. That's exactly this. Not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. Jesus started that. Speaking truth while washing feet. That's, that is this ministry of selflessness, of love, of affection. That's the essence of fruitful gospel ministry. And where do we get that kind of love when you don't feel it? When you're discipling someone, where does that love come from? It comes directly from God, the Spirit. In fact, I love this text. 2 Corinthians 8.16 The Apostle Paul desired to send someone else to those he loved. And in this situation, he says, but thanks be to God who put it in the heart of Titus the same earnest care that I have for you. When you don't feel the love that you know that God uses in the proclamation of the Gospel, ask Him to give it to you. Maybe you don't even know how He's going to give it. You're just like, God, give it to me. Do to me what you did to Titus. Put that same earnest care and love in my heart so I don't have to pretend. I just truly love. Affection is the mark of fruitful ministry. Number six, diligent. <clears throat> there are diligent. This is verse 9. You remember, brothers, our labor until we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the Gospel of God. They were amazingly bivocational. That is, that's un, that's, this is amazing. Unbelievable. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7-9 through 9, talks about the same thing. Um, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, right to be supported, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Amazing. Talk about a love-motivated, diligent minister of the Gospel preached. Paul preached all day and made tents all night or made tents all night, all day and ministered through the night. I, it's amazing what he says here. I'm sure he slept sometime. But he, he was diligent. Talk about a loved, diligent ministering of the Gospel. He labored. That speaks of the intensity of difficulty and the great trouble that comes with work. He toiled. That speaks of the exhausting effect of that labor. The weariness that results. Paul experienced it all in the ministry of the Gospel. 
night and day, speaks of the constancy of their labor and toil. To avoid being a burden while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. This points to the reason for their taking up a trade while ministering the gospel. Tent making. They didn't want to burden the Thessalonians with having to provide for them materially while they were still being convinced of the truth of the gospel and while they were still infants in the faith. Paul, Timothy, Silas didn't want to give the Thessalonians any reason in them, in their ministry, for refusing the gospel. So they denied themselves, even of legitimate rights, in order to win them to Christ. Now, spiritual diligence in gospel ministry may not look exactly like that, but it will include diligence. It's hard work. It is hard work on every front. In fact, no one of us is sufficient for such things. Our sufficiency is of Christ. Diligence is a mark of fruitful ministry. Number seven, integrity. Integral. Verse 10, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul, Silas, Timothy exercised blameless integrity in their ministry to the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians saw it. God saw it. When they ministered from day to day and from person to person, they upheld godly integrity. Their conduct, Paul says there. Daily interactions with other people. Day in, day out. Believers, unbelievers. In the church, in the community. They were holy, says. That word is not the typical word for holy. Here it says, uh, it means that they were reverent. A respectful, worshipful of God and all that they did with each and every believer, each and every unbeliever, because they were mindful of the constant presence of God. That's the idea there. Honor, respect, reverence, because God was there. God was the omnipresent third party at every ministry engagement. Righteous. That that. They were upright. They were just. They were proper. They were lawful. They were ethical in all of their dealings with the Thessalonian people. Whether buying something at the marketplace or visiting in a person's home or working their own trade, they had personal and interpersonal integrity. They were upright. None of these words mean they're perfect and sinless. But this talks about their, their, their pattern, their testimony, their reputation. Blameless is what Paul uses. They had a good reputation, a godly testimony. No legitimate reason for censure in the church and outside of the church. Their conduct, their daily behavior toward those whom they were teaching the gospel in Christ was blameless. That's why Paul stresses this. 1 Timothy 4.16 Keep a close watch on yourself, on your life, and on the teaching. Persist in those things. Persist in that. And by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Integrity is a mark of fruitful ministry. And then finally this morning, number eight, their ministry was edifying. Verses 11 and 12. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Like a father with his children, that 
in biblical terminologies is the ministry of encouragement, exhortation, charging them to grow in love. Paul uses three words to describe their fatherly instruction. Exhortation. We exhorted you. Strong positive appeal. To come alongside of another. To aid and direct toward a path of thought and behavior. To bring them close and to communicate to them the truths that are so critical in the life of a young Christian. As they're beginning to take their first steps in Christ-likeness. Just picture that image. You know, of the father holding the young child's hands with his fingers and helping them to walk. Calling, calling your disciple at your side and walking through the first steps of Christian growth with them. Exhortation. Encouragement to soothe and comfort and console. Right? This is, this is critical for spiritual growth during a season of struggle. Discouragements, trials, failures in the life of any believer, especially new believers, so that they can get up and try again. New believers are just exiting the life that's been dominated by sin. You think they're going to fall. Yes, they are. They need that encouragement. Charging, solemn, earnest, urgent appeal to speak as a witness, to testify from personal experience. This is urgency. So important that new disciples hear from those who have walked with Christ for a longer time who can give them a first-hand witness to the truth of the Word of God and the faithfulness of God. I hear in, this, in these three words the, the, the father of Proverbs telling his son or daughter, look down the path of life. I am farther down the path of life than you are. I know what is at this life path and I know what's in this life path and I urge you to take this one. God will be faithful to you. The Word of God will be your tool. Walk that way. Right? Every minister, disciple, is called to instruct others in that same way. A good father knows when a hurting child needs comfort. He recognizes when a rebellious child needs exhortation. He understands when an unconvinced child needs a charge. He understands all of his children need individualized fatherly instruction. That's what we're called to. Not one size fits all, right? We minister as the need requires and we give the Scripture. Paul, Paul instructed his disciples in a fatherly way just as the Word of God naturally unfolds for believers. Like it says, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and what? Profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. We need to be told what's the right way to go. We need to be corrected when we're wrong. We need to be taught how to get on the right path when we've been walking down the wrong one for a while. And we need to be equipped to keep walking in the right path. And while Paul exhorted and encouraged and charged the Thessalonians in the Gospel, he spiritually empowered them to live according to the will of God by showing them the connection between God's gracious, enabling work in their lives and their own obedient walk. That is a line that disciple makers need to continually draw for their disciples. God's grace and your walk. That's what he says there. We, we charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God 
who calls you to His own kingdom and glory. You can walk daily, obedient thoughts, words, actions, worthy of God. To live like children of God. To live like being a person being indwelt by God. This is what Paul exhorted them to. Live like this. Live like redeemed slaves of Christ. Like, like God is our Savior. Live lives fitting with who we are in Christ. Why? Because it's God who calls us into His own kingdom. That's what Paul's saying. What did God do when He called you into His own kingdom? He transferred you from darkness into light. Colossians 1, 13-14. He literally removed you from the dominion of Satan and placed you under the Lordship of Christ. That must make a massive change in your life. Right? That's what Paul's saying. Philippians 2, 12-13, the power of God is in you, working to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's the fatherly instruction that edifies. Not just telling where the disciple has gone wrong, shows him how to get on the right path, points to the power of the Gospel, the power of God to enable the disciple to walk worthy of God. Edification is a mark of true, faithful, fruitful ministry. Now, Let's close this this morning. What again was the result of that kind of ministry? Verse 13, right? They received. Verses 6 through 10. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. We see all of that in the text. God uses the ministry described in verses 2 through 12 to produce. Verse 13 and verses 6 through 10 in chapter 1. But look again. Look again at chapter 1. How does it all happen? How does it all happen? Look at verse 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. How did it all happen? First, it's God's loving choice, isn't it? Verse 4. This happens. Both, both transformed people and fruitful ministers happen because of God's gracious, loving choice. Second, it happens when the Gospel, the Word of God, is taught among a people, but not just taught as words that vibrate your eardrums, but they come with power in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. Who can do that? Only the Holy Spirit. Right? This, this puts these so far the two things that I've told you are the reason for all of that we talked about happening. That puts us at a great disadvantage, doesn't it? Because we can't do either of those things. This is entirely in the hands of God. And because of that as well, the Spirit of God, look at the third thing. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. 
What was Paul saying there? The reason why they took on the ministry qualities of verses 2 through 12 is because the Holy Spirit enabled them to prove to be those kinds of men who would draw other people to the gospel like they did. Again, that's something we can do for ourselves. The Spirit of God delivers the gospel and the Word of God with words through Christ-like lives. Their lives will win some with Christ's love. And finally, what else we see there is that those who were taught the gospel, they, they joyfully and genuinely imitated the Spirit-filled message and lives of those who taught them so that they, in turn, sounded forth the gospel into the community by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is all the work of God, isn't it? From the choice of its beginning to the, the Spirit-empowered Word transforming a people to the lives of those men being godly to then the people who were taught proclaiming the message from corner to corner of their peninsula. So what, is, what do we do with this? What are we going to do with this? So the first response of this text that I can see is to simply persistently go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Asking Him to send a unique work of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the ascended reigning Christ into our lives for His glory. That's what we need. That's what we need. And Jesus, Jesus talked about that right in the upper room discourse to His disciples. I'll, I'll ask the Father. He will send you a helper. The Spirit of truth. You know Him. He will be with you and in you. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. The helper, when He comes, I, I will send Him to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He'll bear witness about Me and you will also bear witness because... You have been with me from the beginning. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. If I go, I will send Him to you. When He comes, He'll convict the world. Through you, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When the Spirit of truth comes, He'll guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own, his own authority, but whatever He hears, He'll speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. He'll glorify Me. He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. And did that happen? It did. But you will receive power, Acts 1, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And that wasn't just the twelve, was it? Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. As believers in Jesus, we already have the indwelling Spirit. We have already been sealed by the Spirit and baptized by the Spirit into Christ and into the body of Christ. And that, that is our experience. That is our permanent abiding experience from the moment we believe. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says that. But we need to be filled by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're commanded. Ephesians 5.18 And we need to be empowered for fruitful ministry like this. Like, like 1 Thessalonians described. So our main idea this morning, the, the, the point that we come to is simply this. Let's ask Father to send a powerful work of the Holy Spirit proceeding from our reigning Lord to make the ministry God has entrusted to us fruitful for His glory. To make us men and women who prove to be what this text shows. So that then lives are changed and the Gospel is trumpeted into this community. Christ is coming soon. And God is glorified in the salvation of sinners. Bold, truthful, selfless, gentle, affectionate, diligent, integral, edifying. Would you join me in that prayer? And maybe you're here today and you're not yet a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I appeal to you today the way Paul appealed to the Thessalonians. God is our Creator. He owns us. He owns all. He made us in His image and yet we have turned from Him by living a life of selfish sin. And He's also a judge and He will justly judge us for our sin, for our idolatry. Of, of seeking to avoid accountability with Him, seeking to live for ourselves and use all of His creation to simply satisfy our own selfish desires. That's, that's who we are. God will judge that. And yet, God is merciful, isn't He? He loves to show mercy. That is His heart. He loves to be gracious and forgiving. And He, through His Son, provided that way of forgiveness. So that he could remain a just judge. He is willing, if you trust in Christ, to take your guilt and your sin and, and place it on his son. His son will take the guilt and the punishment for you. And he will give to you his son's righteousness. He will, like we sang about, clothed in righteousness divine. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see all of your sin, he sees the perfections of Christ. And by that righteousness, He welcomes you into His kingdom. He will not do that for you unless you are willing to turn away from your sin, let go of your own efforts to save yourself, and trust in Christ alone. Rest in Christ. He did it all. He did everything you need for salvation. Rest in what He did. His life. His death. His resurrection. You can't do any of that saving. Only He can. Trust in Him. And God promises that you will be forgiven and have the gift of eternal life. Believe God's Word. May it work in all of us. Let's stand together and we'll pray this morning. Father, we come to this text with great desires. And we know that from the beginning of this text to the end of it, that it is all of You. We will, by Your grace, strive to be ministers like this 
We're not all we're not apostles like Paul. We're not we're not all elders or deacons. We're not we're all different and yet Father you you have chosen to use men and women, boys and girls throughout the centuries to proclaim your gospel. And so make all of us like this, Father. So that you are glorified in the salvation of sinners in our community. Father, please do the saving, changing work. Turn men and women from serving idols to serve the living and true God and with joy to wait for, for the return of Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus and for His glory. Amen. Let's sing together.